Southwestern family of companies welcomes you to the Action Catalyst. Each week, our diversely and amazingly accomplished guests share their insights and inspirations to help us ignite our own. So let's invest attention together to breathe, to reflect and refocus, and decisively defeat that voice we call Mr. Mediocrity. Then let's enjoy moving forward to make a positive difference in our world. We are excited to share our guest with you today. Michael Brody Waite, a recovering addict, acclaimed speaker, three-time CEO, Inc. 500 founder, and leadership coach, is on a mission to revolutionize the rules of leadership. Michael's unique perspective, from a background in overcoming addiction, is the foundation for his mask-free leadership system, built upon three principles that saved him from death and set him apart as a leader. His TEDx talk, Great Leaders Do What Drug Addicts Do, has been viewed nearly 1 million times in over 25 countries and provides insight into his 16-year journey from near homelessness and addiction to successful entrepreneurship. Welcome to the Action Catalyst, and today we have Michael Brody Waite. Welcome to the Action Catalyst, Michael. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you as well. So tell us a little bit about your story and how did you get to where you are today? Oh, man. Uh, is this is a seven-hour podcast? You ready for that? Yeah, we'll, we'll, do, we'll do the extended version today. <laughs> No. I know you, you were born at an early age, so you could start there. And uh, That is true. That is true. I don't think I'm very unique in that regard. Um, so uh, for me, you know, first 23 years of my life, uh, I had a normal life growing up for a period of time. And then I became an alcoholic and a drug addict in college. And I got kicked out of college and I was uh, basically a couch away from being homeless, on the, living on the streets. And for me, you know, every day was about from the minute I woke up to the minute I passed out at night about getting high. And I was willing to do whatever it took to make that happen. And I was on a road to death. And then I got clean. Um, I ended up finding myself in rehab. And in rehab, I was taught something that I didn't realize I've been looking for my entire life. And that was, they told me that if I wanted to live, I was going to have to learn how to live without a mask. And I'd spent most of my life being whoever you needed me to be to get what I wanted and pretending I was someone that I wasn't. And they told me that I had to learn to be myself. And so that began um, a process where I could tell you a story about the first time I uh, applied this in the real world. So I get out of rehab. And uh, I go into a halfway house and I've got five business days to get a job or they're going to kick me out. And I go applying for jobs everywhere. And everywhere I have to write, that I, in the last three years, I put nothing for my work history. And so I know they're going to ask me about it in the interview. And on day three of this five-day window, I finally get a job interview. And in my mind, if I don't get a job, I don't stay in the halfway house. If I don't stay in the halfway house, I relapse. And if I relapse, I'm going to die. So a lot of pressure on this job interview and I call my sponsor and I ask him, I'm like, what do I say in this job interview when they ask me about this three year gap in my resume? And he said, just tell them the truth. And that was something that I had always wanted to do, but I never thought was possible, especially in a professional environment to show someone the worst thing about you. 
Um, and yet I ended up going into that job interview and I learned that, you know, there were principles that I was equipped with in recovery. And I, when the guy asked me about my work history, I told him that I've been using drugs and drinking for the last three years, um, that I needed this job desperately in order to stay in the halfway house. And when I was done, he said, when can you start? And that started my obsession with challenging the notion that we have to wear masks in order to be successful, not just in life, but especially in work. And so I've wow. done a lot of stuff since then, but that was the, that was the beginning. Wow. What, what an incredible starting point. And I know from there, you then had some success in corporate America, which led you to bootstrapping in quicker. So tell us a little bit about that journey and for the entrepreneurs on the business, they know what it feels like to start a business from a flat rock. It's, it's like having a baby every day. So what, what would you say was some of the lessons learned and when you were starting a business, what was the, the, the way that you went about doing that? Yeah, sure. So, um, so there are three principles that I teach and that I was taught. Um, and, and the first one is practice rigorous authenticity. The second one is surrender the outcome. And the third one is do uncomfortable work. And I always wanted to be an entrepreneur, but my addiction took that away from me. And so I got a career going in corporate America and I figured I'd never be able to start a company because I didn't have a college degree. I didn't have an MBA. I didn't have any official training. I didn't have any work experience. But what I found in corporate America was Everyone around me was addicted to something, except when I was chasing the drugs, they were chasing success. And the thing that was in common between us is we were both hiding behind a mask to do it. And so when I looked around, people were doing the opposite of practice rigorous authenticity, the opposite of surrender the outcome, the opposite of do uncomfortable work. And so I learned that that was a skill set in and of itself that allowed me to be successful climbing the corporate ladder with no reason to be successful at all. Um, it wasn't me, it was the principles. And so when I finally decided to start a company, those were the three principles that I used to do it. Um, and so for me, when I, when I finally left corporate America to start my company, I founded a healthcare software company called Inquicker. We were the first ones to allow patients to schedule appointments online. And I violated just about every rule that you're supposed to follow as an entrepreneur. Um, let's see, I, I quit my job. Uh, with not a lot of money in the bank. Uh, it was, we were in the middle of the recession. I had no investors. I'd never done it before. No one had ever done what we were doing before. It was a, an industry I'd never even worked in before that I didn't fully understand. And despite all that, I maxed out my credit card, drained my 401k, and drained my savings, hired a small team, and went and tried to sell our software to hospitals. And for a period of time, I felt like I needed to pretend that I had it all going on and that I knew everything. And that I was an expert and all that stuff. And then I realized that practicing principles was something that I, in order to stay clean, I've been clean 17 years, I needed to practice them in work and life. I couldn't choose. And I started to be actually take off the mask, practice rigorous authenticity with hot CEOs of hospitals and tell them, look, I think this software is going to change the world, but we don't have a lot of customers. So I'm looking for you to be one of our first ones. And suddenly that started working. And so I have a lot of stories that I can tell about how these principles allowed me to build a business. But what I would say is we did bootstrap because we didn't know how to raise money. Um, we, we violated a lot of the rules. But I'd say what we didn't violate is we were authentic in our leadership. 
And that impacted our relationships with our employees and with our customers in a way that differentiated us compared to most of the people that ended up coming into our space and trying to do what we were trying to do. And watching your Nashville TED talk, it was great seeing uh, the TEDx video where you gave that example of a, of a customer that you had a slight glitch in, in the system and you were all scared to call the customer and let them know that, that there was a mistake and you thought you were going to lose this, this first really big account. And I know as an entrepreneur, that first big account is so important. It's, it's the lifeblood of the whole business. But because of your principle of, of living authentically, you made the phone call anyways, you leaned in and you were fearless with your truth, even if it was painful. And the result of it was the client laughing and saying that that's nothing compared to other mistakes that we've seen with, with things like this. And actually, you've just earned more business because of your authentic, uh, you've earned my trust through your authentic leadership. So that is such a great story. And, and if, if everybody wanted to check that out uh, on the Nashville, it's Nashville TEDx, is that yep. right? Yep, TEDx Nashville. Uh, the title is Great Leaders Do What Drug Addicts Do. Yes. Yeah. Also, I, I love your principle as you're listing those off of do the uncomfortable work. We believe in that at the Southwestern family of companies. And we've been uh, leaning into that principle for 160 years. So tell me a little bit more about you and how you apply the doing the uncomfortable work. And at Southwestern, we would call that the common denominator of success. How do you apply that every day? And, and business? So to me, the uncomfortable work, so we are taught how to do hard work and we're taught how to do smart work. And those are physical and intellectual, but what we're not taught how to do is uncomfortable work because that's emotional. And what it comes down to, and a lot of the people that teach mindfulness will tell you, it comes down to a sensation in our body, a level of discomfort. It's that pit in the middle of your stomach when you know you have to have a difficult conversation. And how many managers out there right now know they are not performance managing their employees to the degree that they could, not because they're afraid of hard work or smart work, but because it's uncomfortable to tell someone, hey, you're not cutting it here, and to give them feedback that they may not like. And so as a drug addict, I was obsessed with being comfortable. I wanted to use drugs every single day so I could feel the way that I wanted to feel. So what I had to learn was to how to do the exact opposite of everything I had done. And so in these three principles, I learned that the key to uncomfortable work is actually the two principles that come before it. The two things that stop uncomfortable work in my experience are when you lack clarity and when you lack energy. And so the first principle, practice rigorous authenticity, forces us to get super clear on what is the true action? What is being true to me in word and action? What do I need to do here? And then surrender the outcome, leaders are taught to completely control the outcome. Nobody can completely control any outcome. We're kidding ourselves. And we waste so much time and energy pretending that we can. We focus so much on what we can't control. We don't focus enough on what we can control. And so when you let go of the outcome and let go of the things that you can't control, you regain a tremendous amount of energy and you're able to focus on what you can control. And between the clarity of what's authentic and the, and the energy of surrender, you're actually able to do the uncomfortable work. So for example, when I was building my startup, um, a year in, we got a bunch of press. We were on a national TV program called Fox and Friends. And I knew that that, could, that level of exposure could kill our company. 
And I remember sitting there saying, I don't know how to lead a company. I know my email signature says I'm a CEO, but I have no idea how to be a CEO. I feel like a little kid in a suit. And so to me, what I thought was, I need to fake it until I make it. But instead, I got super clear. I don't know how to be a CEO. And then I surrendered the outcome. What is my team going to think if I tell them that I don't know how to be a CEO? What are other people going to think if I don't actually pretend that I know what I'm doing? I went to my team and I said, I don't know how to be a CEO. I can't control that I don't know how to be a CEO. I can control whether I seek a mentor. Will you help me find a mentor? And then I found a mentor and I did the uncomfortable work of talking to my team, of going meeting with that mentor and doing all the things that they told me to do. And I was able to scale myself so that I could scale the company and be in service to our mission and our people. But I think a lot of us, it's amazing, our economy has changed so much. And now we're in an information and services economy. And so how successful we are is based off of how people think and feel. And so the degree to which we are good at doing uncomfortable work is a degree to which we have a competitive advantage, I think. Wow. No, that was good stuff. Uh, you, you just covered uh, really good points all throughout that. When, when you were talking about focusing on the controllables, you know, it really comes down to uh, this, we, we call it CIA, control, influence, and accept. So many people want to just focus on things that they actually need to just accept. Yeah. And that's yeah. where most of their emotional energy goes into. And when it comes to controlling the controllables around your attitude, your schedule, your activity, there's only just a handful of those things. What, what do you think is the most important thing that people can control? So um, I was thinking about this. The, um, the thing that, that we say in recovery is, you know, you can sit here and you can think about all of these people, right? Like social media, email, everybody in a company, everybody online, TV, paper, whatever, all this stuff, your customers, your vendors, like all that stuff. And at the end of the day, all I can control is what's in my hula hoop. I literally, if I put on a hula hoop and I look from the outside edges of that hula hoop, to the inside. That's all I can control. I can control what I do. And that is it, in my, in my opinion. For me, uh, my friend Kate gave me that and, and it's something that we've used in, reco in recovery. But it's amazing how much we can lose our energy and our focus going outside of that hula hoop. Now, the actions that I can control as a CEO of a company have broad implications outside of that hula hoop. But at the end of the day, all that matters is what I do and then I can let the implications take care of themselves. It doesn't mean that I don't think through things. I think through those implications. It just means that I'm hyper-focused on that's all I can do. And so I think that we focus, and I'll stop talking after this, but we focus so much. I'm not passionate. You can't tell. Um, we focus <laughs> so much in this world on leading others. We have endless podcasts and books and TED Talks and all. We're so focused on leading others. I think that a lot of us have forgotten how to lead ourselves. And I think that the great leaders in this world lead themselves and they don't actually tell their people what to do. They show their people what to do by how they lead themselves and how they control the one thing they can. And that is what they do. Love it. Love it. Controlling what you do, controlling your activity. And, you know, that translates so well where it doesn't matter what you do, whether you're at home and raising kids and the activity that you do to raise uh, well-rounded children or if you're a pastor of a church and you have activity that you're doing every single day to help shepherd people along the way, 
or if you're on the front lines of a sales team and it's the number of calls you're making, how many times you pick up the phone, how many doors you knock on, all of that is in the same bucket. And I love calling it inside of your hula hoop. <laughs> I've never heard that before. That If you bring a hula hoop to a leadership training, people are going to laugh at you, but it is effective. <laughs> And and you mentioned uh, just a, a minute ago also, so you were the, was it the founder of the Nashville Entrepreneur Center? Is that accurate? Uh, no, you were running? I was, I was the, I was the third CEO, but what was special was I was the first CEO that had actually been one of its first customers. Really? Um, a nonprofit. Uh, our founder was a wonderful, it's still a wonderful man named Michael Bertram. He was one of my mentors. And um, in 2010, when I told you that story about how I went to my team and I needed a mentor, the same month that that happened was the same month in 2010 that the National Entrepreneur Center opened its doors. And I went in there and he became my mentor. Um, And so I got to have my experience, scale my company, sell my company. And when they were looking for their third CEO, uh, they called me and I said, "I I would love to be in service. Wow, that is great. So I'd love to hear just a little bit more about what that was like and some lessons. What would you say are some of the tips that you'd give the listeners that you learned being the CEO of the Nashville Entrepreneur Center? And think through our listeners here, whether they are an entrepreneur or they they just need to know how to tackle something that's a complex challenge and how an entrepreneur would face that problem. Yeah. And you have, I mean, you also have experience with a lot of what we would call entrepreneurs, people that are operating in an organization, but they have to operate from an entrepreneurial mindset. Um, so I really, I mean, you probably agree. Entrepreneurship can be applied to a lot, a lot more than Absolutely. Just strict entrepreneurs. Um, so there, there are far too many lessons to share, but the biggest one is when we, when I took over the National Entrepreneur Center at the time, um, structured programs called accelerators were really popular where you go through this concentrated program, you get a bunch of investment and it's supposed to accelerate your business to a more successful place. And there were all these fancy models, but I was coming in from a different perspective. When I looked at the Entrepreneur Center, the National Entrepreneur Center, it actually reminded me a lot of the 12-step program that I entered when I entered Nashville, Tennessee. So when I entered a 12-step program, I had to go to a place. So I'm from California. I had to come to a place in Nashville, Tennessee that I'd never been, go into a room full of drug addicts that are there because they're drug addicts, and say to a bunch of strangers, hi, I'm Mike and I'm a drug addict, and then let someone who knew how to stay clean take me under their wing and show me the process for staying clean. And then when I had enough experience, I turned back. And I felt an obligation to helping the addicts behind me. Well, when I looked at the National Entrepreneur Center, the biggest opportunity I saw was entrepreneurs sharing their experience, strength, and hope. And so one of the things that we did was we started asking ourselves what actually drives successful entrepreneurship. And we came across this research by a nonprofit called Endeavor. And one of the things that they do is they build uh, entrepreneurship ecosystems in underdeveloped countries and even in some really challenged um, economies such as Detroit in the US. And they did a lot of research. And what they found was the number one thing that was the difference between a successful entrepreneur and not was was not the amount of money they raised, not the curriculum that they went through, not where they were, not connections. It was the quality of their mentorship. And so when I think about any entrepreneur out there right now, 
It is one of the loneliest things that you can do, but you are not alone. All of us that have gone through this are willing to reach back and help. We just need someone to tell us where you are. And so one of the things that you need to do is, well, in my experience, it can be really helpful is recognize that entrepreneurs feel like they need to pretend that they know all the answers because they're raising money or they're trying to convince someone that they're real. But I told you the story about how I started actually getting customers when I took the mask off. Well, let people know what you need help with. Go to the places in every city in the U.S. There are entrepreneur support organizations all over the place. In Nashville, Tennessee, we there are 250. It's hard to find where they are, but they are there and entrepreneurs convene together and mentors show up to help the generations behind them. And so whatever it is that you're doing, there's someone that's been on the path that you're going down that wants to help. So just go out and find your entrepreneur community, find your mentor and let them know what you're really struggling with and let them help you so that you can become even better than whatever you are today in being successful. You do not need to figure this out on your own. You are not alone. You just have to ask for help, just like a drug addict. Wow, that is powerful, Michael. And amen to that. Uh, I'm, I'm a big believer in everything you just said. Just wrapping up here, how could our audience directly engage with you and, and stay connected with you and, and to learn more? You, you have such a great story. I, I highly encourage everybody to uh, look at your Nashville TEDx talk. Uh, what else? Uh, where would you like to direct everybody, Michael? Yeah, uh, thank you for that. Um, everybody could go to uh, just michaelbrodyweight.com, um, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-B-R-O-D-Y-W-A-I-T-E.com. Um, our mission is to help the world live mask-free, and the way that we're doing that is by teaching mask-free leadership. And so on that website, there's some assets that can help leaders that are asking themselves, am I authentic enough? Am I, am I looking for a competitive advantage by being my true self? And they can go there. Um, also, I'm putting out mask-free content through social. Uh, social media is a very masked world. And so we're putting out mask-free content. And then I have a book coming out May 5th called Great Leaders Live Like Drug Addicts. And they can obviously read more about the mask-free leadership program um, that we're building. And I also... If you're okay with it, we set up something for your audience. We created a mask assessment. If you wanna know what masks are holding you back, like I say yes when I should say no, I avoid difficult conversations, I hide weaknesses, I hold back my unique perspective. Um, you, can text th uh, to, you can text ACTION to 33777 and we'll send you a link. Our assessment is $29, but for this audience, the link will be free as a gift to your audience is gratitude for having us on the show and allowing us to spread the message. And, um, you know, if just one person's able to take off their mask and claim their unique competitive advantage, it'll have been worth it. I love it. I love the, the mission spirit that you have and that you have had ever since having the grace extended to you to break free of, of addiction and for you to pay that forward in a continuous service uh, time after time with everything that you do. So we encourage everybody to reach out and uh, I appreciate your authenticity and, and uh, love everything that you're about, Michael. So thanks for being on the Action Catalyst today and look forward to hearing more successes uh, into the future of, of everything that you're doing. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. If you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to subscribe. To stay updated on everything that the Action Catalyst is up to, 
Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Action Catalyst Podcast and Twitter at Catalyst underscore Action. Thanks for listening.